Hello and welcome to the Max Communications podcast where we are celebrating World Digital Preservation Day. Held on the first Thursday of every November, this year it falls on the 5th of November. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Rachel Howes-Binnington, Deputy Archivist for Fortnum & Mason. Hi Rachel, would you like to introduce yourself and talk about what you do at Fortnum & Mason? Hi Faith, um, so my name is Rachel Howes-Binnington and I am Deputy Archivist. I work alongside Dr. Andrea Tanner who's been the Archivist and Heritage um, Collections Manager at Fortnum's for 25 years. I think she's officially been in post as Company Archivist um, for 11 years and the company has been in business since 1707. The archives, there was an archive survey done in the mid eighties, which I think is the first point at which the business was like, ooh, corporate memory. We need to get a handle on that. Um, which is not unusual, I think, in companies that, are, that, that haven't had a chance to pause and really take stock and evaluate their histories. Um, and from that, that then led to Dr. Tanner coming on as a volunteer on Saturdays and then led to her coming on as a, a full-time member of staff. And then a year and a half ago, she got me. It's very exciting. Very exciting for me because I had worked at Fortnum's um, 10 years prior in the customer experience, um, customer relations team and had really loved the brand, really loved the business and loved the fact that it was a business that actively uses and thrives on its heritage. So why do you believe that digital preservation is important for the Fortnum collection? For the Fortnum's collection, because a lot of the material that we have in our business archives is heavily used for research, product development, um, enhancing the customer experience, and in protecting our heritage and our brand identity. We couldn't do the level of outreach and customer support that we do without a digital preservation strategy and without digitizing. We just couldn't do it. Um, we don't have enough people and we don't have enough original material that we could share around the business. And having it digitized and having those images available in a central place, we're slowly building up a heritage catalog and a digital asset management system, separate but linked. Um, sorry, I don't know why I'm using my hands. Nobody on the recording can see that. Um, that will, that allows us to reach out to all facets of the business that come to us for information and come to us for research. So that's logistics, that's warehousing and packaging, that's design, marketing, hospitality, retail, the gamut of what happens in the business, use the archive services and use the collection. So I should say something about our facilities and historic building preservation because that falls within our remit. We work alongside our facilities management team to manage the physical structure of the building. So brickwork, cornicing, paint, um, woodwork, all of that has to be historically accurate. And we have to make sure that we're completely on point because it's a listed building and we're responsible for, for managing that aspect of its history. So in terms of your strategy, it sounds like a lot of the usage will be internal. Does that guide how you, you target <clears throat> the material, what you prioritize? Yes, it does. Um, we have a strategy that we project out 18 months 
So when I came on board, I did an overview and I wrote a three to five year strategy with an 18 month immediate um, projection of what we would be doing. And that immediately got usurped because it, it is also driven by business need. So I've just fast tracked um, having all of our menus from our restaurants digitized, which was, we knew it was coming, but we thought we would have a year and a half or so to do it. But COVID mm -hmm. has completely changed the structure, obviously, at the moment, none of our restaurants are open, right? Mm -hmm. But we're doing takeaway food, and we've recently teamed up with a delivery service. So you can, if you're in central London, I think it's out to zone two, you can order through supper and have Fortnum's delivered to your doorstep. You can either have the meals cooked or you can have them ha you know, pre-prepared for you to cook and finish at home. And we needed to be able to look at what we've done before to just increase our offering and come up with new and inventive. And yet, I don't wanna say nostalgic, but something that makes you feel like it's reminiscent of the experience that you'd have at Fortnum. So having those menus done now mean that my executive chef, who is gonna be on site at Fortnum's, can go through the menus and be like, you know what, this is what we were doing in the 20s, this is what we were doing in the 30s. We're doing sandwiches again you know, for people to take away. What kind of sandwiches? How, what is a twist that we can do? What was Wolstein recommending that we would do when he would do his live cooking demonstrations? But it also means that people in the marketing team can sit at home and work remotely and engage with the menus in terms of a design element, in terms of wording. We're very particular about our brand message and the Fortnum style. Um, and so the menus are a clear indication of what that style should be because it they're they're they are representative of our love and our passion for food and celebration if that makes sense yeah so covid has had a but it was not expected i should say that we had to fast track that. huge impact on your strategy then it did it did and it happened very quickly so and it and it only happened as fluidly as it did because i had an intern who started in september and we were able to put her immediately onto the menus because at the same time we were doing a digital preservation of our shop windows and our visual, visual merchandising. So both of, and the, the visual merchandising and the, the, the shop windows were also business driven and we needed to have it done because we were using photographs. We were digitizing photographs from a third party design team who work with us as well as our own. So we have material that we needed to get back to them. <clears throat> and yet it also had a timely, it was also time sensitive and you didn't want to have to choose between the two. But what that has meant is that for the next six months, I don't have a digitization budget because I've burned through nine months worth of digitization unexpectedly but in a weird way, it works out with COVID because I wouldn't be able to get into my collection anyway to pull the material to yes. digitize, or I'd be doing it at home. And that would be so labor intensive that it would be nine months before I even got it finished. You know, because we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of menus. What would you say are the biggest challenges you've come across with your digitization? I would say, format. A lot of our material is wonky in size. Um, 
age and condition, um, which is part of why we outsource a lot of the digitization because your equipment is just better than ours and you're able to catch, capture it at a higher DPI. Um, and time. I work two days a week. My boss works four days a week. You know, we are stretched. And, and, and I say that we work those hours, but we work more than that. And we are stretched very thin on the ground in a positive sense. I mean, it's great that we have the demand that we do for what we do. Um, but it takes energy to run a digitization program because it's not like you're just going out and scanning this stuff. You then, you then have to manage it after you've created it. And you have to make sure that people can get access to it and that they know where to look to get access to it. And that the channels that they're looking at are actually up and running. For two months, we couldn't get we had issues getting um, into one of our sites to actually view our images. It was just this kind of perfect storm of the laptop that had most of the, the VPN access was being sent out for repair. Dell didn't repair the laptop. They sent it back unrepaired, but didn't put a ticket in saying that they had, you know, I mean, it was just kind of one of those perfect storms of why didn't we know this wasn't working? But because nobody was able to go into their actual hard, you know, they're actually hardwired machines. I mean, IT were running, we're trying to troubleshoot what was going on, but even they were confused and it was really just down to this one laptop. That isn't the case anymore. Now we've diversified and we've broadened that out. But I'm also the only person, well, along with Tim Schofield who works with you guys, I'm the only person who processes the images at the moment internally. So if I've got a backlog of other work, like research that I'm doing for marketing, that takes precedence over processing the images. So it's a balancing act. And I would love to be able to dedicate more time to it. I'm hoping over the next few weeks that we'll have more images online and available for people to peruse internally. We don't tend, just because of business confidentiality, to share the business archives with anyone who hasn't been granted access. Um, but we will occasionally reproduce material from the archives for customers, or we will use direct images in marketing campaigns. And we have created bespoke product that we've sold in store based off of Bowdoin images or that kind of thing. At the moment, we've got some really lovely Christmas ornaments that are based off of Bowdoin drawings. Nice. Um, so there's a lot of tie in between what we have in the collection and how that gets used for business continuity and for business development. And that's why we digitize, because if we didn't, especially now, we'd be stuffed because we couldn't even get into where we are to show people what we have that they can use. What kind of feedback do you get on, on your projects? With what we've digitized to date, everyone loves it because they can come in and they can, they can come online and they can see exactly what they need to see and they don't have to wait for it. I think that's the big thing is that what we've noticed is that there just isn't patience in business turnaround anymore. And we want to be able to meet that expectation. Um, there's always going to be an element of, well, it's, it hasn't been scanned yet because that's just the way archives work. Like I all, I'm always going to have a backlog there. The day that I don't, and I'm wandering around like Toby and West Wing going, I don't have anything to do is the day that it's time to find a new collection because clearly I've missed something. Um, but 
we started with the things that were getting the most heavy physical business use and are working our way back through okay. the collection. So for us, it was our Christmas catalogs, then the rest of our, our business catalogs, um, our commentaries, which are a really lovely thing that were sent out in the 20s and 30s that just kind of talk about what we're offering in store. Um, and we're the first example of junk mail. <laughs> Portnum's, Portnum's is the reason that you get circulars through your door. We figured out that if you didn't seal the envelope, you got charged less postage. And we made the heavy use of that. We, we could be the blessing and the curse whenever you open up your mail. What else have we done? We have some original orders, um, like for Shackleton's exhibition. And we've got King Edward's return of merchandise when he abdicated. Oh gosh, yes. Yeah, yeah, because he sent back a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, and we've had those digitized because we use them and we've had surrogates reproduced because we use them in talks, like if we're having a dinner and it's specific kind of, as part of a tour experience, you want people to be able to look at the surrogates and get a sense of of the, the actual documents themselves. And, and you can see that through a screen, but if you're in the room, you want to have a physical, it just, it, the physical surrogate, I think is a nice touch. Um, we are moving on to some of our smaller pieces of art and artwork that designers have done for us over the years. Again, that's not going to happen until I think second or third quarter of 2021, um, in part because we, through our budget unexpectedly but necessarily just yesterday we, we got the bill for the menus and we were like oh yeah they were they were big those those were a big ticket item we we knew that they were going to be big we just didn't and we didn't realize that we'd have so many and on, when you're looking at the menus they could be from the same month but things change by what's available. So you have to look at the date at the bottom of the menu to make sure that there isn't a difference. And it, it is the small thing, like it will just be one change on a menu that's been printed, but that impacts remarkably on, on what we were offering. And we wanted to capture that. So we, we have done that. And what that did do also is it pared down in the physical stock of what we had in the archives and gave me surrogates that I could take back into the business and say, okay, look, I had, 15 of these different menus, you guys can have 13 of them. I've kept one in a spare and those are in the archives and they've been digitized. I'm quite happy for you guys to cut up, paste, spill, whatever you want on those, go forth and go forth and trash them. They're not, they're not precious in that sense. <clears throat> and then we have things that customers have sent us over the years and we digitize letters and um, receipts and we buy, we'll buy in material um, because we have a lot less in the collection than you think that we would. Um, Dr. Tanner probably spoke to the material that was destroyed in the Second World War and then we had a theft out of the back of a Fortnum's van in the in the, the late 50s that kind of decimated things like ledgers. We are working on our shareholders minutes and our directors minutes but again those wouldn't be available to the public anyway. Um, but for us, from a business history standpoint, it, they are invaluable because the detail of what we're carrying and what we're looking at carrying and our relationships with suppliers, those are important. They're important not only for 
our history, but they're important to dictate how we should be treating our suppliers today. We have a certain reputation to uphold and we want to make sure that we're doing that. And the only way that we can do that is to look at our elders. Yes, so you, your strategy is to digitize the past, keep your collection, your archive collection focused, but still have a wealth of material to draw upon. Yes, yes. and so we then also look, I mean, we do have contemporary material in the collection um, that we don't have available as born digital for whatever reason. We didn't get it back from suppliers, we didn't get it back from the creators, or it just got deleted from the server and all we have is the physical. And we digitize those as well. And that's the heritage perspective, the digital asset management that is really looking at our born digital files that are getting produced and trying to figure out where the intersect between what needs to come into heritage and what needs to stay within the business and developing those retention schedules, which is going to be a very slow process. It was identified as a business need when I was there in 2010. It has been repeatedly, you know, um, identified as a business need and it, and it is, it is accepted that it's pressing. It's just finding the time, the staff and the resources to do it because we run, we try to run a pretty, you know, lean and mean ship. And that means that you don't always have time to stop and do the things that in terms of your heritage archive, I know some of it will be kept back for your own purposes and, and to um, maintain your brand, but how much of it is available for just the general general public? Um, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. So if you write to us and you tell, or you contact us and you tell us what you want to use it for and what you're looking for, odds are we're going to let you, we're going to let you have a look at it. Like we're not we're precious about it, but we're not secretive about it. We don't have a viewing room at the moment. Like the collection isn't dark, but it's not on site at Piccadilly at the moment. And it isn't as open as either Andrea or I would like it to be in that sense. I think from a visitor's perspective, it would always be, there would be key things that we would, we would display for tours if you had a specific research need and it was supported by the business and you had gotten clearance from um, our board or from the FD, then we would happily have business research use of the archives. Um, we had some very interesting discussions, the resurgence of um, justified concern around Black Lives Matter and um, the colonial legacy and relationship of Portnams with the empire, because let's face it, there's a relationship. Mm -hmm. And we, we've, you know, we've taken, we're, we're in the process of taking a lot of care about researching that and looking into it and also recognizing that at some point we will have to bring in external researchers to help us examine that because we're not, we're in some respects, we're too close to it to really see, and we're protective of it, right? Yeah. Like it's our baby. So we want, to, we want to acknowledge that there are awkward moments and that there are things that even within the context of history probably weren't done well that we were part of, but we also want to protect our baby. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that really awkward, painful dichotomy. I think when you're looking after heritage collections and you know that there's there's something uncomfortable, you can't turn away from it. You have to acknowledge that it's there and that it's part of, 
part of the story, but how do you do that? And how do you do it in a way that's, that's respectful of the questions that are being asked now, but also cognizant that times were different. Yeah. And I'm saying, I'm not saying times were right. They were different. Yeah, it's interesting that, that that filter or that kaleidoscope that emerges that has to be examined, you know, and I'm not necessarily the right person to be interrogating the material in that way. It is because I come with my own. Yeah, it's been, obviously it's been um, an eventful year, but there's been a lot of looking backwards and looking forwards at the same time and kind of what cues you want to take from history, what you want to learn and what you want to carry forward into society. Have you noticed a kind of um, renewed interest in archives this year, particularly? Not from that standpoint or from the standpoint of looking. I mean, we as a business immediately realized that we needed to take us to take a pause and take a moment to really look through who we were and who we are. Um, but we hadn't really seen, and we haven't really seen that much of a questioning about that from, from our customer base. Um, and I don't, I don't know where it is being driven or why that, it, that hasn't been more of a thing. Um, I think it will become even as, as a just kind of ad hoc general, oh, I wonder what their relationship with Empire was in X. I wonder how closely they were involved with the East India Company. I wonder, you know, it'll be a casual thing. We have a journal that um, the archives contributes heavily to, images and content. And I think those are the, th that's the arena that those questions will start to come out of. And I think they'll come back into the collection and that's when we'll, we'll interrogate a bit more and we'll look a bit more closely and we'll be able to pull from the material that we've already digitized and also look at where we can go forward. I've got a lot of audio and a lot of AV stuff that I need to have digitized. I just don't have the budget or the capacity to save it. Like I don't have this, I don't have server space really for it. And because we don't know what's on the content, right? Like I'm talking about VHSs and Betamax from the seventies. I don't know what's on them. So I, we're saying that we need to save them, but until somebody's reviewed them, <laughs> do we really? Right now they're just sitting, I don't even know half, some of the stuff I look at it and I think, could we even open it? Like, could we even get it? Does that, does that VHS actually work? I think that might be an American VHS. Do we have do we have a, a a VHS player that will do both? I mean, we have Tim Emblem Smith over at the stockroom, so he can sort that out for us. But you know, it's just kind of funny the stuff that you inherit that you think. I know we're saying we need to save this, but do we really? <laughs> because my best friend is very often in the bin. So. Well, as part of your digital uh, preservation strategy is prioritizing your collections and they go hand in hand with just basic collection management. Yeah. It, yeah, basic collection management and also what you have capacity for and what you know is going to get used. There is this, there is this sense of if somebody hasn't asked for X in 25 years, 
what is the likelihood that they ever will? And if they never knew it existed, does it matter? If they come and ask for it and you don't have it, you think, ooh, well, that gives you a certain amount of freedom, but then you also need to be able to cover your, cover your bases for when that eventuality or something to be removed. Sometimes, sometimes the solution to that is to digitize it and then and then yeah. it in your collection because you have a copy of it, but it's not taking up physical space. Absolutely, but but this is where I'm going to say, you know, we also have to remember that virtual space takes up space, and it isn't just just because you're scanning something and it's going off into the ether. Even the ether takes up space, right? There's still responsibility and care that has to be taken of that virtual space. And you still have to make sure that you have the capacity to open the material that you've digitized, that you can still get access to it. You have to have a business continuity plan for what happens if your service provider goes out of business or the relationship deteriorates or you decide to move providers. All of those things have to be factored in and it creates almost a carbon of what you've got with your physical collections management, right? Except that you don't actually have the luxury of being able to go into the warehouse and being like, okay, well, when I break up with you, I'm taking all of these boxes mm -hmm. and I'm moving them into a van. Now it's, I'm going to take all of these virtual hard drives and this virtual server that you've put on Amazon Glacier and I'm going to move it over here to another part of Amazon Glacier because they seem to be everything. If it's not Amazon, it's Iron Mountain. And you're like, I think secretly you're all owned by the same people and we just don't realize it. There's three. It's like kitchen companies, right? Every, everybody's got every, there's like 45 different kitchen providers. But when you start researching back, they're all made in two factories. All of the kitchen components, they're all made in the same places. But you still have to manage that. Mm -hmm. And it still requires, you know, legal provision, costs, um, metadata, you know, the same kind of cataloging purview that you have to take with your physical collection, you have to take with your digital collection. And then you have, you have the extra layer of having to tie them to the physical item if you still have it. Or the rights issues if you, or removal issues if you've chosen to, to cast aside the physical. You know, I don't want people to just look at digitization and think, oh, well, if I'm digitizing it and I'm getting rid of the original, then I'm done because it's, you're just creating another orphan. And you're in, I think with digital stuff that isn't looked after property, properly, you're in even more danger of it being forgotten because they can't see the physical item. That's a good point. You know, it's, it's just one of those things that I, I, I do worry about. And, you know, we can talk all day long about digitization and how essential it is. And I do believe it is essential. I think it's inevitable that it is the way that the sect, the heritage sector is going. We've, we see it every day, right? And we use them every day. And access to archives, I think, during, some, during, during an incident like COVID has shown us the value of digital preservation, right? But I still don't know how long it's gonna last. I know how long the Magna Carta's lasted, mm -hmm. so I can benchmark how long it's going to continue to last in its physical state, but I can't tell you how long the images are going to last because I don't know what the technology is going to look like in 15 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. In 2005, I didn't have a Facebook account. 
And I wasn't taking pictures with my phone to the degree. I wasn't documenting the minutia of my life and then trying to filter out what, what goes into my personal archive, what goes into my, you know, what goes into the bin, what goes up on my Instagram, who controls my Instagram after I die. I wasn't thinking about any of that kind of stuff. And with digital preservation, that becomes a whole other issue that the business has to think about. Yeah. That, that if, the ar if there isn't an archivist, or if the archivist leaves, it takes that knowledge with them, that the business might not even be aware that it has. And that worries me, that potential for things to fall through the cracks and then get lost. And then you've invested all of this money and you have all of this artifact and product but nobody can get to it because they don't know where it is. I worry about that constantly. Like I said, I, I wake up in the middle of the night and these are the things that keep me going, oh, crap, does Georgina know who we've got down as our storage providers for, for Dryad? Who has the master logins? Oh wait, it's okay, I sent them to IT. I've got a, you know, I'm looking through my email. Nope, it's okay. You know, and then I think about my email and I'm like, I'm still using PST. I'm still using PST files and Outlook to save my emails. Well, that's not how that should be going, but we haven't progressed with that technology. Microsoft's still using PST files. Mm -hmm. And yet I know so many people who will save attachments of material that's in the archives. Like we'll send images. We have a huge issue at the moment where, because we're at this awkward stage between a digital asset management system coming online and just being able to communicate through the business where everybody's using anything and everything they can to get their work done. Like, yeah, but we really shouldn't be weed transferring this. And we really shouldn't be loading this up to your private G drive. And we really shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. But at the same time, there's a business need. You know, we're using your out, your one look, or sorry, your, um, your one drive on, on Microsoft but you're using a Mac at home and it's not compatible and you forgot your work laptop somewhere or your work laptop's out being repaired because Dell can't find it. You know, and you just think work still has to get done. So people are really just using anything and everything they can. That's not healthy either because we just don't know what kind of surrogates we're going to end up with. And I'll tell you, if I come across one more file named new folder and new folder two, I'm gonna hurt somebody. I love it when new file, new folder three is empty, and it's and it's been there since 2007. I came across one of those the other day. I'm like, really? And you just couldn't delete it? Yeah. yeah. Or rename it. I don't know. <laughs> Image brackets one. That's that's another one. Yes. You know, or Steve's Steve's photos. Well, Steve hasn't worked here since 2018, and. There are no photos that in that folder that anybody ever needs to see. Steve should not have been putting those on his work drive. We don't need those in the archive. Delete. But it's just, you know, you don't think about these things until you're doing your digital preservation strategy. And then, and then until you're managing that strategy, you know, on a tactical level, and you're having to make the decisions, you don't really think about it. Yeah, until you have to. Our process is organic in response to the business needs, but we do try to make it formal and we do make sure that it's considered 
not just from the archives perspective. Like we do run it through the other departments to say, all right, are we actually capturing in this next 18 months what the business thinks it might need? And always understanding that there's gonna be another menus project mm -hmm. that's gonna blow everything out of the water and push everything else back. And then it's also managing those relationships. So like when the menus project took over, I had to push three other projects back. And I had to go to those teams and say, look, I know you guys were really hoping visual merchandising, you were really hoping, hoping that we'd have product placement from, 19, from the 1970s done for you, but that's not gonna happen. We're pushing that back because of the menus. And most of the time people understand, right? Because the business needs change and, and you just have to adapt. But it, it is, there's that personal relationship aspect of it too, because at the end of the day, I'm providing a service to the business that the business is dictating. Mm -hmm. And I've got five to seven departments of the business trying to dictate to me what the business needs should be. And how do you filter out that noise to focus down and be like, actually, nobody's looked at, at that VM stuff from the 1970s. Is that really a priority? And if we have multiples, can we not just hand them over? You know, folders of, of some of the multiples so that they can get an idea and not worry if we don't get them back because we know we have an air and a spare of the physical until we get them digitized. Yeah, I think it's great how clearly integrated your, your both your archives and also your digital preservation um, projects are with the entire Fortnum & Mason company. That's I don't think forward-looking. Forward we don't have a choice, really and truly. We really don't. And we're incredibly fortunate that because it's the business archives, like we can bring, we've been able to bring stuff home with us. Like I have a processing section in my house upstairs that my kids aren't allowed into that's under lock and key so that they don't mess anything up. My boss has been able to take things home to work on. So we're still sorting you know, photos and that kind of thing for some of these projects that haven't, that are on the back burner. But when they're, when they're no longer on the back burner, then they're ready to go. Yeah. Right. And that, that means that just gives us this more flexibility. So in a really weird way, COVID has been great for us because it's allowed us to spend more time with the collections because we're normally split over two locations, right? So we have, we're either in Woolwich or we're in Piccadilly or we're running back and forth between the two. And to be able to actually sit down with the material and the business is a very rare treat, even if you're doing it remotely. Yeah. No, it's, it's incredible. And the way that you've pivoted so quickly to accommodate changing all the changes this year with, with prioritizing menus and moving things back and things like that. I think that's really impressive. I think that that also comes down to just knowing that you're part of a good team and that if you have open dialogue, then it's going to be okay. Nothing is ever going to be ideal, but if you have trust, and I think that that goes a lot into your digital preservation strategy too, because if you don't trust in the strategy and you don't trust in the process and you don't trust in your vendors and the people that you're working with, none of it's going to work none of it's going to work and and everything everything that will crop up and be problematic becomes a problem you know the number of times tim schoolfield calls me and he says 
I have a concern about this metadata. And I'm like, okay, well, what's the concern? And then I'll say, well, I didn't think about what you were raising, but it's not an issue. Let's just change it because you've explained to me why. And it's, you know, we're just reversing X for Y. Let's do it. And he's like, I really expected you to need, you need to take longer to think this through. And I'm like, mm, I really don't because you know what? I trust, I trust you and I can see your point. And sometimes I'm literally making decisions in a 30 second window because that's all I've got in the course of my day to allocate to that. So if you have a really good relationship with your providers, they can troubleshoot where you might miss something. And I have to be able to trust that you know what you're doing because that's why I hired you. If I could do everything perfectly all of the time, I'd be dead because I'd be exhausted and I would have died from lack of sleep. But that's why I have you guys. Thank you so much for your insight today, Rachel. It's, <laughs> I've really enjoyed hearing about all the, all the challenges you've had and how you've managed to cope so admirably. It's been Well, I hope, I hope that that gives you an insight of what it's like to work in our business archives. I'm looking forward to hear what other people have to say and how they're doing it better and what I can crib off of their cheat sheets. Well, you know, the great thing about the heritage industry is that we are quite collaborative and, and it's, it's not true yeah. all the time. I do love how we share. Thank you very much for joining me today, Rachel. Okay. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, Faith. It was great. And it's great to see you again. I haven't seen you in a while. Yes. Thank you. Right. Bye. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye.